This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the program. I'm Sterling Fox. This is our first expanded version of the show. And in just a few minutes, the senior partner and owner of the Zuckerman Law Group will join us to take your calls and talk about family law issues of all kinds. Then next hour, John Carlson is back with a Vancouver Market Real Estate Update. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Bank of Canada Governor Stephen Polos had another warning for us consumers this week when he was asked about when we can expect the next interest rate increase. As he usually does, Mr. Polos talked about the $2 trillion of household debt, of which $1.5 trillion is in mortgages, and how that huge number is making things quite difficult for our central bank to make interest rate decisions. The Bank of Canada has introduced three rate hikes since last July, but took a pass last month when they could have increased rates again, preferring to hold at 1.25% for the time being. Paul Oz says it's dicey. If the bank moves too fast in jacking up the rates, the move could cause a slowdown in economic growth. And if they move too slowly, then inflation could rise above their target of 2%. Combine this with concerns about the future of NAFTA and the uncertainty around the new mortgage rules, and you have a central bank in a tight spot. The next available opportunity for an interest rate across Canada is May 30th, but the experts are focusing on a July meeting as the likely spot for the next boost in interest rates. The data firm at the center of Facebook's privacy scandal is declaring bankruptcy and shutting down. In a statement, Cambridge Analytica says it has been vilified for actions it says are both legal and widely accepted as part of online advertising. The firm says the media furor stripped it of its customers and suppliers, forcing it to close. Cambridge Analytica has been linked to Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. The British firm suspended its CEO in April amid investigations, you may recall the firm sought information on Facebook to build psychological profiles on a large portion of the U.S. electorate. Rather, The company was able to amass the database quickly with the help of an app that appeared to be, oh, a personality test. The app collected data on tens of millions of people and their Facebook friends, even those who did not download the app themselves. Canadian firm Aggregate IQ Data Services Limited, which has been linked to Cambridge Analytica but consistently denied any connection, said Wednesday it's business as usual and it has no plans of shuttering. Now, Facebook estimates the personal information of over 600,000 users here in Canada and nearly 87 million worldwide was improperly accessed by Cambridge Analytica. Facebook has since tightened its privacy restrictions, Cambridge has denied wrongdoing, and Trump's campaign said he didn't use Cambridge's data. Obviously, this story is far from over. Italian super sports car maker Ferrari says first quarter 
profits are up 19% to a record 149 million euros. That's about 180 million Canadian dollars. Uh, this with over just over 2,100 vehicles in total sold. The car maker said shipments were up over 6% with Europe and the Middle East, the largest single market, followed by the Americas, both North and South, and then sales in Greater China were up 14% as well. Busy week here in Vancouver at City Hall, and one of the results is more patios, live music, and extended entertainment hours for the Granville Strip downtown. The city says that restaurants that are operating by existing good operators will now be granted regular hours of liquor service without having to complete a three-month probationary review. Bars in the Granville Entertainment District will be permitted to apply for licensed outdoor patios, and this will be reviewed by the city on a case-by-case basis. The city says that of the 21 liquor establishments in that Granville Entertainment District, about well, between 6 and 10 will meet the current patio requirements. In order to support local arts and entertainment initiatives and spaces, a new liquor business license will permit arts and cultural nonprofit organizations art dealers, and galleries to sell and serve alcohol to their patrons during regular business hours up until 11 p.m. Also, a nightlife council will be created in order to, quote, foster a healthy and active nightlife and economy by combining safety, security, transportation, economic development, and vibrant street life. However, no closed cur- circuit, rather, TV coverage of the downtown Granville Strip area will be part of that, uh, the uh, nightlife vigilance. Oh, and here's an unexpected revelation. Swedish meatballs, you know, the kind you get at Ikea? Well, they may not be from Sweden after all. Sweden's official Twitter account has suggested the dish may have originated in Turkey. In the early 1700s, Sweden's King Charles XII spent some time in Moldova near Ukraine, which was under Turkish rule, and developed quite the fondness for meatballs. So, when the king comes home to Sweden, he brought along the recipe. And since then, it has become a staple of food in Sweden. Oh, by the way, the king also brought home coffee beans, and stuffed cabbage. When the official word about the meatballs came down from the government's official Twitter people, well, the the population was shocked. Okay, and amused. One guy tweeted, My whole life was a lie! To which the government replied, Don't be so hard on yourself. Time starts now. (laughs) Those are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. We'll look at a few more later in the hour and in the next hour, too. Stay with us and stand by your phone because Stuart Zuckerman, owner and principal partner with the Zuckerman Law Group, will join us in just a few moments to take your calls and answer all your questions about family law. Coming right up on Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. Welcome back to the program. 2.15 on this gorgeous Saturday afternoon. 19 degrees at English Bay, just a couple of blocks down the street. I'm Sterling Fox. It's Vancouver Consumer welcoming back Stuart Zuckerman, the senior partner and owner of the Zuckerman Law Group with offices in Surrey and downtown Vancouver. Stuart, nice to see you again. Nice to see you, Sterling. I'm glad to be here on a beautiful Saturday looking over this gorgeous view of uh, English Bay behind us. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely day. Good to have you with us. And, and of course, your, your firm specializes in fa- 
family law. And I wanted to talk to you about a few family law issues. But first of all, because you're a popular guy and you're a repeat guest, listeners know when Stuart Zuckerman is in studio, he they can call the radio station and ask their questions about family law. So, Andrew and Ben, let's get right to the phones and open up. Release the lines. It's a 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. For your questions to Stuart Zuckerman, uh, the principal partner and owner of the Zuckerman Law Group, the, the subject matter is family law. And Stuart, uh, we're learning uh, statistically, of course, the divorce, divorce rate hasn't altered much. It's still averaging approximately 50%, and that's been the same for decades now. But one thing that is changing is people are deciding to wait to get married till later in life. They're cohabiting for longer periods of time, and as statistics and surveys continue to show us, in many cases, they don't bother formalizing the relationship with a, a religious or civic ceremony. They just The cohabitation is just fine. But there are elements to common law or cohabitation that people need to understand. That's right. Um, if, you, if you live with someone in a uh, spousal-like relationship for a period of two years or more, once you cross that two-year line of living in a spousal-like relationship, um, that triggers this uh, concept of common law spouse. And uh, since 2013, when the, the law changed, prior to 2013 in British Columbia, we had the Family Relations Act. Uh, in, uh, in 2013, in the spring of 2013, the Family Law Act replaced the Family Relations Act. And under the Family Law Act, common law couples are now treated exactly the same as married couples when it comes to property division. Okay. So if you're living with someone for two years or more, once you cross that two-year line, um, then each of the parties has an entitlement to 50% of the growth in equity of all of the assets of the other spouse from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation. And all of these issues are completely beyond and aside from anything relating to children. That's correct. Whether you have children or not, uh, this is the, the common law Entitlement is the common law entitlement is both to spousal support. Once you're together two years or more, you can sue for alimony or spousal support, just as if you were married. And similarly, you have the same rights on property division and debt division, uh, where both spouses have this automatic presumed entitlement to 50% of the growth in assets and debts from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation, regardless of contribution, regardless of your financial arrangement, um, regardless of the income of the parties. That's just the starting presumption is that it's all going to be 50-50. You used a word I haven't heard for a long time. You said alimony. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's a, good, it's a good old word. It's, it's one that uh, people who are familiar with family law for a long period of time, that was the word, but it's kind of uh, gone out of fashion, well, hasn't al- it? Alimony is used in the U.S. Um, in in British Columbia and uh, like most Canada, we refer to spousal support or maintenance. Uh, in Quebec, the French word is alimentaire, uh, so they're, they're, it's related to alimony mm-hmm. as well. Um, but uh, it really means the same thing. It means a spousal support, maintenance, uh, payment from the higher income earner to the lower income earner in order after separation, in order to uh, have both households have a similar uh, lifestyle uh, ability, ability to, to meet their expenses in a similar fashion. Okay, now and, co- cohabitation agreements could be a part of securing a, a, a less shocking end to relationships. Couldn't it? Absolutely. My advice to anybody who's in a relationship, uh, if you're in your, you're live, once you're living together or you make the decision to live together, ideally before you get to the two-year mark, you should have a discussion about your finances and, and what will happen in the future if the two of you were to separate with regard to who owns what or yeah. who's going to share what. And what you can do is you can hire a lawyer like myself um, or any lawyer that does family law to, to, 
draft a cohabitation agreement, which is similar to a prenuptial or a marriage agreement. Right. What the cohabitation agreement does is it replaces the, the family law act. It's, you're saying instead of what the family law act says about what's going to happen, here's what we two have agreed and decided is going to happen with respect to my property, her property, my RRSP, her RRSP, our income, spousal support. You can agree on lists. You can add a schedule to the, those agreements of your assets and her assets that will each remain your own, right. won't be shared. It's a very uh, common sense, uh, practical way to avoid a costly court battle when you separate and to have the, the certainty of knowledge about what's going to happen in the event that we do separate with our finances. So you don't have to worry about a court action or the uncertainty of what might happen um, if, you, if you have no agreement. It's much better to have that agreement in writing. And that can be done for typically around three to $4,000 more or less with most firms um, to interview you, take your information, give you advice, help you uh, craft uh, uh, an appropriate agreement and, and give you independent legal advice when you sign up the agreement. Right. And this is not something to be trifled with. This is not something you should download from the internet on the doityourself.com uh, law site. I, I can tell you I've been practicing family law for 29 years. And in those 29 years, I've probably had uh, two dozen at least cases where someone came in with a uh, their own uh, separation agreement or their own cohabitation agreement that they downloaded off the internet yeah. or they got it from a bookstore and they filled in the blanks and it's a it's a usually a very bad idea to do that because uh, f- first of all if you don't if each party didn't have independent legal advice it's a, that's a very easy way to challenge the agreement in the in the future because each party may have had a different interpretation of what a particular line yeah, in the I thought it meant this no no yeah. I thought it and, meant that and so and there in, you go. in in law in ba- in first year law school you learn something in contract law called consensus ad- one of the necessities for a contract to be valid is for their, in Latin, the phrase consensus ad idem, a meeting of the minds. Mm-hmm. Like both parties have to be agreeing to the same thing. So one of the arguments, and I, I have successfully, I've gone to court where one of the, my client did not have independent legal advice and he wanted to challenge an agreement several years later. And in the agreement, he had promised to transfer the house to his wife of many years. And then now it was years later, the house values had skyrocketed sure. in Vancouver and he didn't want to transfer the house. And we went to court and we successfully set aside that agreement on the basis of no no consensus at Edom. That is that he had a different interpretation of the agreement than she did. Um, so uh, that's why independent legal advice at the time that you sign your agreement by both parties is is a, a priority and must be must be done to help uphold the agreement. Because that way the court knows later that both parties had a lawyer who explained what the legal terms of the agreement meant sure. to each of them. and they understood. Yeah, they understood similarly what the law uh, would be. Interesting stuff. Stuart, you are a popular guy. Our phones are getting awfully busy. We appreciate that. And uh, if you're on the, the phone board, stay right where you are. We'll get to you as quickly as possible. And we begin with the very patient Natalie. Good afternoon. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, Go ahead to Stuart Zuckerman, Natalie, please. Okay, Stuart, I need to ask you a question about mental illness with regard to legal separation and divorce. My husband has had mental illness for the decade we've been together. Last year, he engaged in another relationship with another woman and he decided to end our relationship which I accepted. Unfortunately, then he rejected her and had a complete mental health breakdown. Since August 22nd of 2017, he has not worked and he is in and out of institutions. I can't seem to get him served. I can't seem to get in front of a judge. And it's just a very long process. How do you handle mental illness 
in with regard to trying to navigate the law. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you ought to be able to obtain something called a substitutional service order. If you've made efforts to serve court documents on somebody and because they're hospitalized or because their family is protecting them or because they're hiding and avoiding uh, process servers, um, n- normally you would have an affidavit of attempted service prepared, which would be a document sworn by the person who attempted to serve the person with the court paper saying, here's all the efforts I made to serve the person and locate them. That would go before a judge and you'd ask for permission to serve someone on behalf of that person. So it might be your husband's mother or it might be your husband's brother or sister uh, or a business partner, somebody who would you who, who the court might expect might be, have more easily con- easy contact with him. And you can get an order that says this person can be served in substitution for the husband. And then you can proceed in the, in the court proceeding as if the husband was served once, that, once you've got that substitutional service order. Uh, typically with mental health issues, uh, the, what, would, what would happen is under the Adult Guardianship Act, someone uh, or even under the Supreme Court rule, someone would be appointed as a guardian ad litem. That's a, a guardian for purposes of litigation mm-hmm. on, on behalf of your husband who would make the decisions on his behalf uh, about how to defend the case. Um, but th- that's normally what the court would expect when the person has mental illness on the other side is that a guardian would be appointed on their behalf to to defend their interests. And then the court can decide between your claims and the guardian's claims uh, with respect to d- division of assets or support or other things. Sorry to interrupt. What is the difference between guardianship and power of attorney? Because my lawyer is saying, can we not get somebody to get power of attorney over your husband? So what is the difference? That's a good question too, Um, Natalie. Well, a power of attorney is a a document that's sworn that gives the person who is appointed the power of attorney complete control over the affairs of the person who assigned the power of attorney to them. That's different than uh, a guardian ad litem. A guardian ad litem is a a person who's appointed solely for the purpose of litigation. When there's a lawsuit involving someone who lacks mental capacity, a guardian ad litem is appointed by the court. Uh, Typically, a family member or business associate is, is appointed to represent the interests of the mentally impaired person. Okay, so if I can get a family member to step up and act as power of attorney, which I have discussed with his family, they're lovely, and they've been very supportive. Are you telling me that if I have a family member take the documents into the Surrey Memorial psych ward and deliver them to him, that is considered delivery of the documents so that my court dates are so there's two there's two different issues there the 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 first of all if he lacks mental capacity he can't appoint a power of attorney right so right. Uh, that would be an invalid appointment if he's if he's lacking mental capacity uh the 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 question you're that i think you're asking is about subservice and you would have to get an order first from the court Okay. That that says this is how you're going to serve your spouse. You're going to serve them by, you're not going to have to, the court may not want the document to be served on him in the hospital, especially if he's mentally impaired. It may be that you simply serve his mother, his sister, or his brother on his behalf. Right. So Natalie, there, it, it's an extra step or two, but there is a process and it can be done. Good. That's good to know. I do know a route that I can take in that manner. And thank you so much for your Most welcome. You're quite welcome. Thanks for calling this afternoon. Uh, Elaine in Richmond, over to you. Hello. Hello. I actually have two questions. Um, so my first question, um, when it comes to the custody, is it always 50-50 or is, it, is there a leeway of some sort? And uh, my second question is regarding my parents. Uh, they've been married for 25 years and now they're separated and my father wants to retire at age 55. Would there be any change in my mother's spousal support because of that? 
Okay, those are two great uh, questions. Elaine, I'm going to uh, send you back to your radio uh, because we're coming up to a news break, and, and, and Stuart's going to answer both of your questions, but may not be able to answer them both back-to-back. So okay. go ahead, please, and so, we'll do what we can before the news. Sure. First, with respect to custody, um, uh, I, I've been practicing many years. When I started out in the late 80s, early 90s, it was very difficult to get 50-50 uh, parenting. Now it's the commonplace, almost the starting point. Uh, courts um, kind of presume that it's in the best interest of the children to have maximum contact with both parents. That is in the Divorce Act and the Family Law Act, that, that the court should award such parenting time as is consistent with the best interests of the child, giving maximum contact to both parents. There's been lots of studies, what's happened in the last 10 years, lots of psychological studies of children of divorce, which have convinced the courts uh, through psychologists that have spoken to the courts that it's that children do better socially uh, when they have contact with both parents. Uh, there are cases uh, where 50-50 would be inappropriate. So if you have a, a you know a father or a mother who's an alcoholic, a heroin addict, who's highly abusive um, or neglectful of the children, uh, those are cases where you can go into court and the court may order primary care to one or the to the father or the mother in order to but not. But that's the exception. More the, yeah, yeah that, okay. that's correct. Um, but it's certainly uh, it's not a rule that it's 50-50. The question is always what's in the best interest of the children. And if the, the, the big thing here is that it's, a, it's not about which parent is better. It's just having capacity to parent. As long as both parents have capacity to parent, the court may order 50-50 or equal parenting time to, to the parties. Interesting. And uh, Elaine's second question dealt with uh, a marriage of a long term that is coming to an end and how spousal support works uh, for those people after a protracted relationship, right. Stuart, uh, our guest is the owner and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law Group, Stuart Zuckerman in studio. Well, uh, if you're on the phone board, stay right where you are. We'll get to your calls after the news. Hey. And welcome back to the program. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by the senior partner and owner of the Zuckerman Law Group. Always a pleasure to have Stuart Zuckerman stop by for a visit. We appreciate your patience on the phone board. Let me just, before we go back to uh, Elaine's second question, and then we'll get to Bill in Vancouver very quickly, uh, let me just remind everyone about Stuart's website. It's ZuckermanLaw.ca, and Zuckerman is Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N, Zuckerman Law. .ca. Elaine's second question, Stuart, dealt with uh, her parents, who uh, regrettably are uh, breaking up after being married for at least 25 years. Her dad wants to retire at 55, uh, and she's concerned about uh, the, the amount of support her mom's going to get, particularly, I assume, after dad retires. Right. So um, when parties separate, uh, the parties are the, the lower income earner is entitled to spousal support from the higher income earner. There is a general rule of thumb, a formula under what's called the spousal support advisory guidelines on a long-term marriage like that. Uh, a 25-year marriage um, or most uh, in, in any length of marriage, you can take... times the number of years of marriage, so 2% times 25 equals 50. So in this case, 50% of the difference in the party's incomes would be paid from the higher income earner to the lower income earner as tax-deductible spousal support to him taxable in the hands of the the lower income earning spouse. So if you had somebody, for example, that where the husband's earning 100,000 a year and the wife's earning 50,000 a year, that the difference in their incomes is $50,000. 50% of that is 25,000. So the husband would pay just over 2,000 a month. It's a total of $25,000 
25000 a year to their wife, and that way both of their incomes are equalized. So I, when you get to 25 years, you're looking at an equalization of incomes, and probably anything over a 20-year marriage, you're looking at something like that. But when you're in a shorter-term marriage, the, there's not necessarily this presumption of equalization, but certainly uh, some amount of spousal support from the higher-income earner to the lower-income earner. So that's one thing is that the, the, the income is divided. The and, next, and let me interrupt, though, just, just to, again, and I don't want to put words in Elaine's mouth, but is this does this mean indefinitely then mom is going to be looked after to that uh, degree for the rest of her earthly so the, days? The duration of support is from half the length of the marriage uh, or relationship to the full length of the relationship, uh, except when there's children. Sometimes when there's children, the spousal support could continue until the youngest child is 19, even if the marriage wasn't that long. Um, so uh, on a marriage of – and there's also something called the rule of 65. If the number of years of cohabitation or marriage um, – uh, uh, plus the age of the recipient at separation equal or exceed 65. So if the wife was uh, 40 at the time of separation and they were together 25 years, that would those those two numbers add up 65, to 65. Sure. There's a presumption of lifetime entitlement to support. I get you. Okay. So so Elaine's mother is in, presumed to be entitled to lifetime support. And and the interesting thing that she raised uh, is where dad says I'm 55 and I want to retire early. Um, that does happen, especially with high income earners who've saved a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say I don't want to work anymore. Um, and the, the the problem there is, of course, uh, that uh, they have an obligation to support their spouse. So if you if a, if a, if her father tried to retire at fifty five and had no medical reason to justify his retirement, if he was just choosing to retire, right. the mother could apply to court to impute income to him and say, "Look, he was earning a hundred thousand last year. He could still be earning a hundred thousand this year. He's choosing to retire in order to avoid paying me support or for other for personal reasons." And the court can impose on him an income imputation, saying, "We're gonna you have three the last three years you've earned." Earned 100,000 a year. We're going to presume you can continue to earn that, and we're going to award 25,000 a year in spousal support, just as if you were still earning 100,000 a year, to, so that your your spouse doesn't lose out because you're choosing to retire. On the other hand, if you retire at 65 or later, or you retire because there's medical reasons, then the spousal support may come to an end or be significantly reduced. Interesting, Elaine. Thanks very much for your call. Hopefully, we've covered all the bases you, you raised and the issues. Uh, to Vancouver, Bill. I appreciate your patience this afternoon. Hello. Oh, hello, Sterling. Uh, I, 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 uh, I, I, a question's arisen with regard to my daughter, and she has gotten she got involved a number of years ago with a chap, and they lived together for about six months or so. And uh, he gave her several gifts over that period of time. Now, <clears throat> of course, uh, love is never forever, and they broke up. So she returned most of the gifts. And, and, and his property, etc. But he had given her uh, a, 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 a horse. You know, it's not worth a bunch of money, but he gave her he gave her a horse. Okay. And uh, so now he wants the horse back. Well, after, I, I, she, after she's looked after it for you know the last couple of years right. and, and fed it and. Uh, and uh, and broke it and everything. So and, the, the, uh, the the simple answer, Bill, is a gift is a gift is a gift. Um, and normally, uh, in family law as well as uh, contract law or general civil law, if somebody gifts something to somebody, it's you can't take it back. So uh, once it's gifted, it becomes the property of the recipient, and there's no legal right for the the person who paid for it to claim it back if they've gifted it to the other person. Bill, has has your the 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 ex uh, made any threatening sort of uh, oh, yeah. messages? Oh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, I want that horse back or else. Dot dot oh, yeah. dot. Yeah. So if you're if you're if 
if your daughter has fear for her personal safety, she should be calling the RCMP or the police and reporting that she is in fear for her safety and give hand those threats over to the police and they'll speak to him, show up at his door and 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 they they may if the threats are significant, uh, he, he a restraining order can be issued or a, a peace bond where he's not to communicate with her or come within a certain distance of her or she could apply for a restraining order for him not to communicate with her. Uh, th- those are all options. Yeah. Okay. That sounds really Thanks, Bill. Appreciate the call. 604-280-9898 is the number. Lines are wide open. 604-280-9898. In hello, North, hello. In, hello, Bill in North Vancouver. Hello there. Uh, how are you? Finally. Okay, uh, just a question here. I wanted to come in and see Stuart, but I need a, an answer on this question. I haven't seen my wife for 20 years, and uh, I took nothing, I got nothing, and I'm just wondering if she can come back now and say, well, I want some money or whatever. W- were you divorced? No. So uh, I tried, but it never, never, it never worked. The, the, I couldn't do anything. The the, the limitation uh, in the divorce act is that if a divorce is granted, you, you after after two years after the granting of a divorce, uh, a person can't bring claims for property or support. There are exceptions to that, but if there's no divorce, um, then certainly a person can bring claims for support or property division, asset division, or pension division, RRSP division. Those things are all still open to her. The delay of 20 years, if, if she brought a claim after 20 years, the delay would significantly affect her claims, particularly a spousal support claim would be very weak after 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and the property claims uh, there's no, may... No, there, there's no family or anything involved, you know, and right. I never... I was locked out of the house. I had no choice but leave. So you know. So if you never got if you never got your equity out of the house and the house is still owned by her, you could make a claim against her for your share of the. Uh, no, equity she in the home. Uh, she lost it. She uh, lived and wouldn't make payments and lost it. Right. Well, you know, if there's no assets or debts, to, the no. chances are she's not going to pursue anything. But uh, but I'm just saying she has the right, and you have the right to make claims against each other still if you've never gotten your divorce order. Or never signed a separation agreement. There's also a two-year limitation from the date that you've signed a separation yeah, well, agreement it, to bring well, those claims. I tried, but I couldn't get anywhere, so I just dropped it and left it. Yeah. Okay. But I wanted to come in one day. Something came up, and I had to sort of try to get an answer on this question. But uh, I want to come in. And, no and, problem. And we do offer uh, free initial consultations. We have nine lawyers at our two offices, our office in Surrey at 152nd Street and Highway 10, and our office in Yaletown on Mainland Street. Most of our main office is in Surrey, but we do meet clients in Yaletown as well. And any of our nine lawyers uh, provide a free half-hour consultation where we can answer all of your uh, questions and uh, give you adv- your, advise you as to what your rights and obligations are and your spouse's rights and obligations. And we'll also tell you what, what you would incur in legal fees to take various types of steps. You, you use this uh, line in your on your website and in your uh, radio commercials. Don't just worry about your legal problems. Get some free advice and at least know where you stand. Yeah. Yeah. My an, goodness, get right? answers. I mean, a lot of people worry and talk to their girlfriends or their sisters, or and get they get bad advice about what their rights are, what they should do, what their entitlements are. The best thing to do if you have a, a question about separation, divorce, custody, uh, parenting, um, assets, debts, in, in a, as a result of a relationship where it's breakdown, is call a family lawyer, book an initial consultation, meet with them, uh, get advice, and you walk away educated. I can't tell you, I, I, in all the 29 years that I've done this, almost in 99% of the cases when I finish the meeting with my client, they say, 
I feel so much better. Sure. I'm so relieved because now I know what my rights are. I know what I'm exposed to, what I might have to pay or what I might be entitled to. All that stuff has been answered in, in an initial consultation. Well, and in a lot of cases, you know, marriages end up, they don't just sort of uh, gradually linger and then eventually dissolve. Uh, sometimes they're pretty violent and yes. pretty abrupt and pretty emotionally, to say the least, stressful. Yes. And, and people feel uh, completely betrayed. And uh, this is a lot of this. This is not the way this script was supposed to turn yes, out. Yeah. And so people, they don't know where they stand. Yeah. They're so emotionally in shock. Yeah. It takes days, sometimes weeks or months to be able to come around to figure out that, well, I got to do something here. Absolutely. So, uh, and it's free. That first chat is free. Yep. For and goodness uh, sake. Wanted to ask you about debts. Uh, when there's lots of chat about assets and division of and of these escalating property value uh, uh, realities we live with around Metro Vancouver, uh, there have been obviously a lot of claims for uh, appreciation of uh, a value of, of the assets. Yes. But what happens at the dissolution of a relationship, Stuart, to debts yep. incurred during that relationship? So under the Family Law Act, again for the first time because it was not in the Family Relations Act, under the Family Law Act, um, there there is a provision that deals with debts the same way that it deals with assets, that all debts incurred from the date of cohabitation or the date of marriage uh, to the date of separation uh, are subject to a 50-50 split. Um, there is some case law that looks at the what the debt was incurred for, as long as it was incurred for a family purpose. And that could mean if somebody used the credit card to pay for groceries, to pay for clothing for the children or their own clothing, to pay for gas in their car or restaurant meals out, all that stuff that was incurred during the relationship, regardless of whether the other spouse was aware the credit card card was being used for that purpose, all that debt is subject to a 50-50 split, excluding the amount of debt that each party had on the date of cohabitation. That's their own problem. Whatever you brought into the relationship right. with your debt is still your debt, but any growth in that debt or new debt from the date of cohab forward is subject to the 50-50 split. Even if it's on an individual credit card, for That's example. Correct. Yes. As long as it was for a common purpose, yeah. then the debt is shared yeah. in e- common way. E- even one could argue things like uh, if, some, if somebody incurred a student loan during their relationship, so you're living with somebody for 10 years, and for three of those years, you're going to BCIT on a student loan. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a debt that's incurred for, if it doesn't matter that it's for one, per, one person's education, it's still a family debt that was incurred during the time they were together. It's subject to a 50-50 split. Interesting. Okay, back to the phones here. Uh, we're in Abbotsford this time. Mike, hello. Oh, hi there. Hi there, Stuart. Um, I have a question for you, Stuart. I've been paying child support and spousal support for the past couple of years, and I'm in the middle of a review right now with my ex. The question regarding sole proprietorships for income, if my wife and I, my ex-wife and I both have a sole proprietorship, we have gross earnings, and then of course we have write-offs, net earnings, should the percentage for both parties be the same as to how much is counted as income when we're calculating payments? Uh, well, that's, it's a difficult question. I mean, when, when someone has a sole proprietorship and we're doing a spousal support review, we look at their financial statement of their sole proprietorship and, and we question, so I, you know, I would look at, uh, there are certain types of expenses that a, that a person puts down for tax purposes that may really be personal expenses that they're claiming through the company as a tax write-off. So if, if a party is putting down, um, um, promotion and they have a huge number, like, you know, 
$25,000 a year or $30,000 a year as promotion. That may just be their restaurant bills. And they're, they're saying, you know, every time I go out with my brother, I talk about my business, so I'm writing it off. And, right, and right. maybe Revenue Canada might not argue that you wrote that off. But for family law purposes, um, if I was acting for a spouse who said to me, when I look at my husband's financial statement, he's got, you know, an absurd number for promotion. He has an absurd number for advertising. He has an absurd number for, you know, um, uh, whatever types of expenses might be personal Cars, expenses. all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I, sure. I, I would conduct a, an examination of that person under oath and question and ask for receipts for those uh, types of expenses. And then you can, in court, argue that those there's something called clawbacks. You'd ask the court to add those those um, those unreal expenses back to the person's income uh, in determining what their guideline income is, either for child or spousal support. So, you know, it might be a fair way if you're both in the same type of business, if you're both realtors, for example, it might be reasonable that you both use the same percentage uh, for, um, you know, Is that the case, Mike? Are are you both in the same line of work? Uh, No, no. That adds a layer of complication. We're both in different fields. Gotcha. So so you'd have to look at each person individually. It wouldn't be reasonable to say that because the wife writes off 10% of her cell phone that the husband is only limited to 10% of his cell phone. Because if you were a realtor, you know, it might be that 90% of your cell phone bill is for business and you'd you'd legitimately write off 90%. Whereas if her business is something where she doesn't, her cell phone is not involved in her business and it's all personal use, but she's writing off 50% of it, you might get the court to claw that back to her income. So it depends. In each case, I mean, the real answer is to you know meet with a lawyer and and have them look at the financial statement of each party and and uh, and then give you advice on that. Uh, Mike, you're in Abbotsford, and Stewart's office closest to you is at uh, King George and Number Ten uh, there in Surrey. One fifty second and Number Ten. That's right. I'm sorry. One fifty second and Number Ten Highway uh, in Surrey. That's not too far at all. About uh, twenty five minutes, and you're there. Thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for the call, Mike. Good to hear from you this afternoon. Uh, We talked a little bit about debts and and assets. We haven't talked at all about children. We don't have a lot of time Mm -hmm. left. Uh, But uh, there was one, uh, it it comes up a lot, and and I saw an article in the paper about it the other day, and I just wanted to ask you about it in general terms. Uh, When there is a a divorce, when there is the dissolution of the marriage, and then, of course, there's the the, the matter of of, of child support, and custody. Mm-hmm. And one parent deliberately goes out of his or her way to alienate the other parent due to anger and all of the leftover stuff from the relationship between the grown-ups. Mm-hmm. And some of the children get co-opted, like it or not, into being part of the revenge army. Yep. Uh, so how do you handle that? Well, parental alienation, unfortunately, it does occur uh, quite often. It is a big topic in family law. Um, in, you can, under Section 211 of the Family Law Act, apply for a child psychologist to be appointed uh, to interview and assess, uh, interview each of the parties, interview the children, and conduct an assessment. Um, if the court receives uh, a professional opinion or, or evidence of witnesses that convinces the court that a child has been wrongfully alienated from a parent, uh, the court does have the discretion to make orders for the, 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 uh, the parent who has been alienated and the child uh, from whom they've been alienated to be jointly, uh, to jointly attend a counseling program. There's several uh, counseling programs in British Columbia that focus on reconciling. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, because some of these kids have been really poisoned, yes. and they don't want to go to dad's house yeah. for the weekend. They don't want anything to do with the guy. Yeah. And it's not, there's nothing wrong here. There's just a really, a really malicious little thing happening yeah, so, on the part of the other so parent. The court can force both the alienating parent to attend the counseling, and they can also force the, the child uh, who has been alienated to attend the counseling with the alienated parent and to, uh, to work on reconciliation of the relationship. Uh, the court, there have been cases where the courts have taken primary care away from the alienating parent and granted 
primary care to the alienated parent um, together with assistance of counseling in order to overcome so that the, the, let's say the mother alienates the child, the court may make an order that the mother can't see or speak to the child for six months or three months or a year at what, during which the counseling and the reconciliation is going on and the child's placed in the primary care of the father. And the child at least has the opportunity to discover that maybe that information yes. about the other parent was actually just wrong. Absolutely. Interesting stuff. Stuart Zuckerman and uh, company can be found online at zuckermanlaw.ca. And let me repeat the spelling of the name. It's a little unusual. Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N. Zuckermanlaw.ca. And a great website. Lots of good, useful information, practical information. Tons of articles there as well. Yep, great blogs and and all that sort of thing. And, of course, all the contact information. If you're, uh, again, with the two locations out there at 152 and number 10 in Surrey, and downtown here in Yaletown, not far from the radio station, on Mainland Street. Yep. So a couple of opportunities, uh, depending on uh, proximity, for you to give exactly. them a call. And, and remember, that first uh, initial consultation is no charge. And we've got over 80 years of combined legal experience between the nine lawyers uh, that we've got there. And we also have paralegals and uh, legal assistants, so articling students, so everybody and the years of experience can affect the r- uh, rate of pay. Oh, so, sure. Uh, we can tailor uh, the, our services to somebody, if you can't afford a senior lawyer, to help you, one of our junior lawyers or an article student at a lower hourly rate, uh, or a paralegal may be able to do something for you at a lower hourly rate and uh, help you get things accomplished. And all of that gets discussed up front. That's right. And you can also hire us if you want to self-represent and you want to hire us to give you advice on how to make your arguments or give you some law cases to present to the court uh, or arguments for you to make. You can retain us for that purpose. We don't have to go to court. We can tell you what to say and what to do, and you can go to court and represent yourself. Kind of backstop the case. Yes, if you want to do that, we could do that. Interesting stuff. Always a pleasure, Mr. Zuckerman. We look forward to your next appearance already. Zuckermanlaw.ca. Thanks to Stuart Zuckerman. We're back after this. Thanks. And once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman for another informative visit, and thanks for your calls, too. What a fast hour that was. Coming up in our next hour, John Carlson returns with a fresh Vancouver market real estate update and lots more on the 1% Realty Story. Time now for Dooley Noted, in which this show's producer, Ben Dooley, takes a look at a consumer issue. And today, Ben talks about concerns with romaine lettuce. Thanks, Sterling. As the E. coli outbreak now turns deadly south of the border, fears of eating romaine lettuce are spreading. It actually stopped me from buying salads. It's out there now, so you don't you have to be cautious with what you feed your children. The CDC is now confirming the first E. coli death linked to romaine lettuce in the Yuma, Arizona area. The CDC would only say the victim died in the California area. Dr. Jim Keeney, an emergency room director in California, says this outbreak involves a powerful bacteria. It's unusual because normally you have to ingest uh, tens of thousands of bacteria to actually get sick. With this organism, 10 to 20 to 100 will get you sick. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency said Friday it continues to monitor the situation south of the border, and if it is determined that contaminated lettuce has been imported into Canada, the agency will take the necessary steps to protect the public, including recalling the product as required. According to Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, several provinces import lettuce, including romaine, from Arizona, but it's unclear from what region of the state. Ontario alone has imported 10 million kilograms of lettuce from the state in the first two months of 2018. I'm Ben Dooley.
And that's duly noted. Thank you, Ben. Uh, a couple of more consumer quickies here before we have to go. The, uh, yesterday, TransLink announced plans for a $17 million midlife update to the wet wash, or the sea bus terminal down there at the waterfront. Uh, 17,000 North Shore commuters and visitors pass through that each day. So four escalator replacements, one elevator replacement, seismic upgrades, all part of the work which will start this summer and continue for about a year. Improvements will also include a new staircase to make it quicker to transfer from the sea bus to SkyTrain at Waterfront Station. A new extension will also make it easier for commuters to transfer from Helijet to the sea bus. Here's an interesting story. Riley Taylor is an 11-year-old who lives in Tennessee and who's not really into staying indoors and playing video games. She's more of an outdoorsy person who made an extraordinary discovery a few days ago while walking near her home. She found a fossil. And so she called the university right away. She knew she was onto something. They came over, quickly checked it out, and by gosh, Riley had found the full skeleton of a small anthropod called a trilobite from the Paleozoic era, which happens to be 475 million years old. The folks at the university just a little thrilled about that discovery. And finally, Italian Days on the Drive, now on the official list of celebrations and observances of the city of Vancouver. Bravo, Councillor Melissa De Genova, a proud member of a long-established Vancouver Italian family for spearheading the motion. The... Uh, Italian Day on the Drive happens June 10th this year from Venables to Grandview Cut. And that is our program for today. Well, this hour, Andrew Ferreira at the the controls, Ben Dooley is our producer, and we're back with more after the news at the top of the hour. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.